Welcome to Night Talk, the newest entry into the Everything Went Black podcast network. Professional astrologer, psychic counselor, author, and playwright, Tom Isley joins us for this episode. We cover a lot of ground, including the nature of consciousness, ceremonial magic, tarot, and most recently, Tom's foray into drama and playwriting, an endeavor that came fairly late to him in life. In the last year of my life, I've kind of turned, uh, uh, not away, but I've, I've expanded my field beyond just being a professional astrologer and being an author in general. Um, I kind of got hit by the bug to, you know, write plays, to kind of express what I would ordinarily teach in a class or communicate in a reading through, uh, you know, a dramatic situation that people can watch. And I just figured that perhaps I could get the message, my insights to more people that way, rather than just, you know, working one-on-one or, you know, doing it in front of 10 people for a class. You've written and published several books, and, you know, I've read a couple of them. And uh, you have Mr. Saturn, which is the only play that I've actually, that I'm aware of that you've done, okay? Uh, So now, in general, what's the difference in the process between writing a play and writing some of these other publications that you've done? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm still discovering that. You know, I've come to the playwriting game rather late in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm competing against a lot of younger kids who have studied this in school. And the whole, you know, my education in drama is classically oriented. I mean, I learned how to, I, I not learn, I'm figuring out how to write plays by reading classic plays, mm-hmm. but um, the whole theater business now is transformed where it's not necessarily about writing a play to get it performed, it's about you know writing a play to get it in a contest to get some kind of honorable mention so you can build up a resume and then you can get you know a residency somewhere and then you can work with a company. It's, this, it's become this whole convoluted process and there's people out there who actually have extensive resumes and have not had plays performed. So it's, it's a little weird. Um, and it's a numbers game. But you're, you're definitely interested in the, the classic sense of writing a play and having actors act it out and all this sort of stuff. Um, well, you know, when I do a reading, mm-hmm. it's a drama. Okay. And the last published book I had is titled Psychic Reading. Right. And it's I called it two dramatic dialogues. I didn't really even commit to it calling it a play. But it's you know, an act one and act two. And act one is uh, a professional reader uh giving a reading to a man, a young man, and act two is he giving a reading to a young woman. And there's enough vagary back and forth where this could be a couple that just broke up. And they just happen to see the same reader on different times. Right. Or this could be a very common theme in every breakup. And, you know, essentially, they want to know something. And perhaps I can show them something. Or the character of the reader can show them something. And, you know, the playwright David Mamet said, basically, drama is somebody wants something. And the story is about how they get it. And these people want insight or understanding or to feel better about themselves and they will joust with me for that and you know I say joust because a lot of times they come in with good intentions that they want to 
better themselves or be clear about who they are, but then they will resist at every step of the way. So then yeah, it, so it, be it becomes incumbent upon me to have to tell them what they need to hear in a manner in which they can hear it. Yeah, see, that's something I, I always thought was kind of interesting because, like, you've, I've had readings from you in mm -hmm. the past, and uh, it's hard to hear certain things. And also, when people in general, you have to remember, there's like a wide variety of people out there that probably come and, and talk to you. And some people probably have this subjective idea about what they're going to get from the experience. And when it doesn't go exactly to plan, there's a bit of a conflict. Yeah. 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 So that feeds into what you were saying about, you know. Well, you know, so I write plays from the perspective of somebody thinks something's going to happen and somebody else is going to illuminate them in some way. Um, the second play I wrote that is out there floating around trying to find a home, Mr. Saturn, is based on the astrological phenomenon of Saturn return. Uh, it takes Saturn about 28 years to go all the way around the zodiac and come back to the place it was when you were born. Mm -hmm. So you'll get one approximately at the ages of 28, 56, and 84. And that really coincides with adulthood, menopause, and death. So the basic premise of the play is imagine the god Saturn comes and visits you on each of those return days to kind of discuss what's lacking in your life and what maybe you need to do. So, and it follows one character named Austin. And act one is when he's 28, Mr. Saturn comes and visits him. And when he's 56, he's now a widower and Mr. Saturn comes and visits him. And when he's 84, Mr. Saturn visits him for the last time and helps him cross over. And it's just following the life of a normal person as they age. And since I'm aging, you know, like Betty Davis said, it's not for sissies. Life changes. You know, you're not 25 forever. All of a sudden, you're 45. All of a sudden, you're 55. Right. All of a sudden, you're 65. And it's happening like, wow, how did I get this old this quick? Mm -hmm. And you can still feel like you're not that old, but your body is telling you you are. So, you know, it's you're, you're puffing walking up the stairs. Well, you didn't puff five years ago, you know, and and not only the physical stuff, but the emotional stuff. You know, I, I have a favorite saying, I'm too old for this shit. Well, when does that really kick in? And you really are too old for this shit and you won't buy into it anymore. The stress, the aggravation, the nonsense, the, you know, wanting something when you don't really need it or believing something will make your life better when it's just your attitude that makes your life better. Now, Saturn, and correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, sort of as a, casts a very judgmental and sort of harsh um, eye on, on things in general. Yeah, well, Saturn is looked at on by astrologers as the planet of structure. Strat Saturn is the planet that restricts. Right. So, you know, Venus is love. If Saturn is in uh, a hard aspect to Venus, it will restrict love. It will restrict sensitivity. It will restrict your openness with people. On the other hand, if Saturn is in good aspect to a planet, it can give you more discipline. It can give you more long-term strength. 
I played with it a little bit in Mr. Saturn in that the character of Mr. Saturn was modeled after Cary Grant. Oh, okay. So he appears in a tuxedo. He's very urbane. Um, he's only stern when he needs to be. But ultimately, he's no BS. Um, he often is witty and cracks jokes that are beyond the metal of who he's visiting. Um, but ultimately, he's there to, you know, say, this is, this is what it is. And you can do what you want, but this is what it is. And then by the third meet, you know, and, and every time Mr. Saturn visits, of course, the person doesn't remember the last visit. And it's only in the last act when the character is actually, you know, on the verge of crossing over that, you know, when he goes out of body as he goes back and forth between crossing over, now, now he knows who Mr. Saturn is. And he can acknowledge the history of, Mr., of his relationship with Mr. Saturn. In other words, he's finally getting the rewards of having dealt with Saturn effectively through his whole life. And that's what Saturn is. I mean, Saturn is shit happens, you deal with it, and you get the rewards from that. Either you succeed or you gain insight and strength that prepares you for your next challenge. Yeah, see, that's it's interesting you said fail because I never look at, I mean, things as failures in general in life. It's like, you know, there's a, a fighting coach out there that says you either win or you learn, you know? So it's like you either win your fight or you learn. Okay. You, you apply that. And I like that sort of approach to things where it's like, like really the only time that you fail really is if when they start throwing dirt on your, on your casket and they put you in the ground and then you don't have any more opportunities in this phase of your existence to like do anything differently, you know? Point taken. No, really. Um, I actually agree with you. Uh, my, my, one of the, the sayings I have for myself is if you don't give up, you never lose. Yeah. Um, ironically, though, at the end of Mr. Saturn, um, when he is out of body, and his body is technically alive, but he's, his spirit is already disengaged from it, and now his spirit's kind of hanging around and watching what's going on, um, at that point, he decides to bond with his son, who he has had a difficult relationship with through most of his life. And that's when they actually bond. Um, you know, I wanted to make it metaphysical, but I didn't want it to be fantastic. Yeah, no, it's... So, you know, Mr. Saturn, the only, you know, other than the fact that he never exits or leaves the stage, he just appears or disappears based on the lights coming up mm -hmm. and down. Yeah. So, in other words, when the lights come up, he's there, and the lights go down, he's not there anymore when they come up again. So, he just kind of comes and goes as he pleases, and the only superpower he really has is that he'll wave his hand and he can freeze people, which you know, Saturn restricts. So when somebody's getting out of hand and they're giving him too much of, a, uh, of an argument, he'll just wave his hand and freeze their whole body and then get really close to them and say, okay, now you need to listen. You mentioned that you came to playwriting relatively late in life. So what was stopping you from writing all in the first, you know, what, what got in your way? I just never thought of it. I never, I mean, it's, you know, it, What's the, what's the, you know, how often do we, do we, uh, do we, you know, what's the Eagles song where they say we never even know we have the key? I'm not familiar I with can't that. <laughs> it's on the tip of my tongue. It's an old Eagles song. Uh, I think it's actually a Jackson Brown song, Already Gone. Okay, where, yep. um, I know you know, song. He's like, you know, we're, we're, we've, we, we live our life in cages and never realizing that we have the key. Yep. All right. I mean, I was a movie buff for years. Yeah. I love drama. Um, 
I'm not a musical guy, but I have seen great drama on stage. I saw Al Pacino in American Buffalo. Oh, I saw wow. Geraldine Page in Agnes of God. And I appreciate it. Um, I love Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I think it's one of the greatest American plays ever. Um, and one day, I just, you know, when I was living back in Queens with my wife, I just woke up one morning and I said, thought to myself, a reading would be a good play. You know, I mean, I've done thousands of readings. Right. Um, some of them have been complete farces. Some of them have been extremely illuminating and eye-opening. Um, some of them have been combative. I mean, they've run the total dramatic gamut. You know, I've had, I've had nice people and crazy people. So I was like, all right, well, what's the common theme over most of my readings? And as you could expect, it's love, it's relationships. So I was like, all right, I'll have a reading with a woman and a reading with a man, and we'll see what women traditionally bring to readings and how they deal with the process, and what men don't bring to readings and how they deal with the process, and then have enough links for an astute reader to really think that maybe these two are exes, but maybe they're not. Maybe that's just the commonality in, in people's relationships. So I wrote that, and um, I liked it, but at the time I didn't really know enough about drama because I really wasn't thinking about it. Right. I'm a firm believer that if you really put your mind to something and you really meditate on it and immerse yourself in it, you will understand it. Yeah. But no, until I'm, you I'm do that, that you'll think it's something else. Yeah, I'm definitely in that same phase with things too. Of like, just if you want to do something, you got to grab it and really dig in. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I hadn't really done that. I just I just wrote the dialogue. And I like the way it read. But for some reason, I'm like, well, all the characters do is, you know, I described a set, but one sits on one side of a table and one sits on another side of a table and they just talk and they don't do anything. This would be boring for an audience to watch. Mm -hmm. Well, now that I've learned more about playwriting and have tried to write several more plays, I look back at psychic reading and I'm like, oh, this could play. This could play well. You know, I mean, there's enough in the dialogue. I mean, the characters could get up and walk around if they want. They could push their chair out. You know, I have seen plays where people are sitting at a table and it's quite engaging and quite riveting. So that was just my ignorance. Mm -hmm. um, now, though, as I'm starting to write, I, I've also started to immerse myself in the work of other playwrights. One of my particular favorites is, is Sam Shepard, and what he does in many of his plays is he, has, he, he develops characters and moves scenes by physical action. And I'm really attracted to that. Um, the play that I most recently uh, completed, The Haunting, is, uh, it's a three-act play, and the premise of it is, you know, when we're having a, a close emotional relationship with somebody and we have a disagreement, um, a kind of a wormhole is created between the people and inadvertently in the disagreement your ghosts are going to come out whatever they are your relationship with your parents your relationship with exes mm -hmm. and at some point you're not arguing with your partner anymore you're arguing with your past oh, I can see that and I can actually feel that that that's a true statement just just by you saying that I'm thinking back and I'm like yeah how many times have I gotten into arguments with people where there's this other tulpa out there that I'm actually arguing with. Yeah, that it's not absolutely. even the person. Exactly. Yeah. So the first act is them coming home from a pre-cana. 
you know, they're about they're on the they're they're a couple of days away from their marriage. They're living together. Mm -hmm. They come home from their pre-cana. It's you know, he's not a Catholic. She's a pretend Catholic because she's Puerto Rican. Her mother wants her to do this. So neither of them were into it. And they're just like, thank God that's over. And they come home and they, they you know, crack open a bottle of wine. And, you know, what starts out as a, as a friendly, flirty conversation or an evening together between a couple, as the alcohol starts to flow, they start to get in a silly disagreement. And that silly disagreement escalates as the alcohol escalates until finally they get really pissed off at each other for a really stupid reason. And as the energy is escalating, these two figures come onto the stage. I describe them as hooded figures. And they just come into the shadows in the corner of the set, and the characters are not aware of them. By the time they get to the second act, the argument gets physical. Oh. She gets loud, he throws a wine glass. Now this activates these two hooded figures. And they start doing Tai Chi forms in the corner. And then when it gets to the point where they have an absolute blow up and he goes in the bedroom and slams the door shut and she's out there by herself, one of these demons is attracted to all this negative energy and he comes up behind her and pulls his hood back and it's this real demonic figure and he just, you know, smacks her across the back of the head and now she starts arguing with him. And that's essentially revealed to be a male authoritarian figure in her life. Could be a father, could be an ex-lover. And then after him, the other demon, the other hooded figure is a female. So then she deals with her. And then in scene two, act two, it's his turn. He comes out of the room. He's really pissed. She goes back. She goes into the room. Now he deals with his demons. Act three is they wake up the next morning in their apartment. And even though the apartment got trashed in act two, it looks exactly as it did at the beginning of the play. And now they have to figure out what really happened. What did we say to one another and what did we think but not say to one another? How do we work this out? And the play began with her having a difficult phone, phone conversation with her mother and ends with her standing up to her mother for the first time in her life. There's a couple of interesting things here and a lot of it has to do with perception, you know, and what's real and what's illusion. Mm -hmm. And that is like the crux of something that I've been thinking about and for quite a while. And in the last episode of this show, I had two paranormal investigators on and we talked about perception and, you know, EMF and the mind's eye and all these sorts of things. And we talked about hauntings you know, which connects to, you know, metaphorically you're using it in this case. But then there's like a, a deeper concept that I think about, about demonic possession and hauntings and whatnot. And it's like sometimes the choices that you make or the things that you say or the actions that you do, the decisions let in something that you can consider even that being a demon. You know, oh, at, at, at one point in the in the third act, when they're trying to reconcile because they're they're a, a mature couple, they're ready to be married. They're they're serious. They love each other yeah. when they're trying to make sense of what they went through, because each of them went through a deeper and darker experience than the other person was aware of. OK, OK. And I've noticed this in myself. I mean, there's been times I've gotten in arguments with my wife and. I'm just in this place and it's at some point like she may say to me like why are you so angry and 
the reason I, I find I'm going to come up with has nothing to do with her. And it's like, whoa. Okay, so who is that? You know, at one point in Act 3, he says, you know, um, you know, he said, you know, did I scare you? Were you frightened? And she goes, well, not really. And he says, no, when you threw the wine glass and broke it, I, I was a little, I was a little nervous. And then he says something to her like, yeah, he said, I watched myself do that. And I thought there was a part of me that was saying, what the hell are you doing? And yeah. that's even before the demons get involved. It's just like something clicks. And if somebody shouts over you, it's like your mother shouting over you or an older brother shouting over you or a teacher or a coach that humiliated you shouting over you. And all of a sudden now the person you love in a frustrated place shouts over you and you forget where you are in time and space and a part of you gets transported somewhere else. And that is one of the basis of ritual magic. In other words, where does your mind go as opposed right. to where your body says it has to go? So that's why people believe that, oh, certain things are impossible. No, they're not. Because if we don't fully know our minds, then we don't fully know our reality. Yeah, see, that's, you know, I, I've been studying this stuff, not, not diligently, but I would say a little bit more than just uh, casually for the last like several years and, you know, uh, explored some of the, you know, some, some of my own rituals and things and creating a, like some of the things that, that I have questions about is what you, what you actually, your mind, quote unquote, mind's eye sees and what's actually in your surroundings and where does some of this imagery come from? Because when, I, when, we, when we were speaking with the paranormal investigators, they were talking about the quote-unquote mind's eye. And for those of you who didn't l listen last episode, uh, the, the world that we live in, the way we perceive it is essentially an illusion that our brains take all this like stimulation, be it sound, sight, smell, touch, whatever, create a simulation of, of a reality that we all agree to be this is what reality is. Now, there's other impulses, other stimuli that come and upset this version of reality. Hence, people see things, they have apparitions, they have, you know, feelings of otherness, other beings, things like that. Sometimes it can be explained by, um, you know, physical means, high tension wires, power lines, you know, things like that. Sometimes there's a brain chemical imbalance, and sometimes it's none of those things, okay? And that's the very small, lean percentage of what people perceive to be paranormal. Now, by doing certain physical disciplines or you push yourself in certain ways, you meditate, that you can, you can there's many, many ways to achieve a state where you actually do feel like you're, you're getting information from other places. So now, that's what I want to discuss, really. Is like All right, that. well, you know, in Taoism, yeah. in the Asian perspective, consciousness is infinite. Mind is like an electrical plug in the wall of consciousness. 
In other words, it's your mind is tapping in to something greater than itself. Now, to be aware of what's greater than yourself is probably the hardest thing in the world because it's beyond your conceptions. The, 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 the essence of mind is the part of you that's been trained. It's like a box. It's your box, and you put your reality in it. Right. The idea is to get out of that box. But what we inadvertently do when we try to get out of that box is just get into a slightly bigger box. Yes. Okay? So we really don't know what our mind is. Okay? You know, a neurosurgeon cuts your head open, and there's this fleshy pulp in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they'll say, that's your brain. But other evidence other disciplines will show that when the physical body that supports that brain is dead, the thoughts that were in that brain continue to exist on some level. Arguably, we don't know what that is. Yeah. Okay. Um, when you astral travel, you leave your body behind. Okay, so now there there's some out there that might not know exactly what that, that term means. All right. Astral travel is just being able to go to places remote in time and space from where you are and perceive what's going on there and bring that information back. Okay. Um, the U.S. government had a remote viewing program in the intelligence wings of their military yeah. for many, That's many years. That's actually well documented. There's a book called yeah. Men Who Stare at Goats, which was... Uh, made into a fictionalized movie, but the book is actually more of like a, a document of what the, gov the government's actual studies to do that. Yes. Now, we're, we're on a very slippery slope here. So yeah. give, me, give right. me a minute to try to differentiate some things. Because sure. I try to be clear. Exactly. Um, if you perform ritual magic, um, or you try to meditate on tarot cards or tatwa cards, mm -hmm. okay? You will go to a place called the astral plane, okay? The Kabbalists refer to that as the world of mind. It's called the foundation. And then Malkut, which would be the kingdom, is the physical world we live in. Yeah. Okay? So in your mind, there are places you can go that are essentially alternate realities. They're not limited inside your head because people over generations studying the same spiritual discipline will go to those same places. And it's part of initiation. It's part of learning. So you will travel to this level of reality and then you will go to the next level of reality and, and the gatekeeper will be there and you will have the key that you recite to the gatekeeper and they will let you into that reality and even though all of this is essentially mental and imaginary travel it speaks to a non-ordinary reality that can be shared from generation to generation it has a continuity well the one the one connection i want to make to this when, when we say mental in reality our reality is mental yes it is <laughs> so it really is so the same let's, kind right, of thing Good point. Let's, yeah. you, let's use a different term. Let's just say our perceived reality. Yeah. Okay? Now, the average person walking on the street, and this is no dig against the average person. I mean, you know, we live in a world where practicality 
is our survival. So why yeah. do something if it's not practical to do it? Exactly. So, you know, somebody gets up in the, wor- up in the morning, they go to work. There's no reason for them to think about the astral reality. There's enough problems for them to stay at their job, keep their health care, raise their kids, make their wife happy or their husband happy or whatever. But people who look to be more than human, mm-hmm. it doesn't make them better or worse. They're just curious to want yeah. to be more than human. It's a different path. They know. will engage in these mental exercises and it will help you be calmer and more balanced and more perceptive in your actual physical reality okay now arguably from a non-initiated point of view you could say well all of this astral travel is really just an imaginary world now we get to the phenomenon of actual astral travel or obes out-of-body experience okay i have experienced that and you leave your body and you fly through the wall and you go over distance and you go in somewhere else and you watch what's happening. And then in the next day, if you tell those people you watched what they were doing, you will blow their mind. Now, what's the explanation of that? My body remained. I'm still in this mental place, whether I'm going to the 31st pathway on the tree of life or the eighth pathway on the tree of life, which is an astral reality, or I'm going five blocks down to, you know, 79th street or 80th street. And I'm going in and watching someone have dinner with their friend. And then I can tell them that they were doing it. I can tell them the bottle of wine that they drank. Yeah, this is, we live in a reality that is not easily explainable. These experiences are real. People have had them. And anybody that tries to prevent you from jumping out of the box and into space once you've had the experience is the truly mad one, not you for having the experience. Yeah, I mean, you can... I mean, in general, our society wants to keep everyone controlled... And that's why I think we have so many distractions in our lives as far as like, you know, media and being compelled to buy things and all these other things. Now, on the other hand, where there is spiritual wisdom, there is also spiritual illusion. Okay. Now, right now, Neptune is transiting through the sign of Pisces. That's the sign it rules. Neptune was last in Pisces approximately 165 years ago. At that time, the spiritualist movement swept across Europe. Seances were big business. Tarot cards were, became public knowledge. And if you look at the time we're going in now, or the time we're in now, you can go on Instagram and find, find a thousand tarot readers. Oh, yeah. That's... You can go online and find all kinds of people that will claim all kinds of stuff to you. Are many of them charlatans? Yes. Are some of them the real deal? Yes. But the age of Neptune is about our illusions and breaking out of them. Now, sometimes people think breaking out of their illusion into a bigger illusion is some kind of epiphany. It's not. So if you go from worshiping the material world to studying under some guru who claims to be channeling the Archangel Michael and has you doing really nonsensical stuff on faith, then you have just went from one illusion to the other. Yeah. 
You bring up the Archangel Michael quite a bit in our conversation. It's a very, it's, <laughs> it's a very, I, you know, it's kind of, it's a very common. If I had a nickel for every person that claims to be channeling the Archangel Michael, which you know, on one level, on a mundane level, you could say, well, the Archangel Michael can't be in that many places at the same time. But on the other hand, if he truly is the Archangel Michael, he can be everywhere at once. But the, the information is not determined by the messenger. It's determined by the receiver. In other words, I could have the late Edward Albee mm -hmm. come back from the grave and teach me how to write a play. But if I write a shit play, it's not his fault. Yeah, it's the way you've interpreted It's whatever. the way, it's my, yeah. la, my level of talent, yeah. my level of insight. It's, it, it has a whole bunch of things. So if the Archangel Michael, who, why should I think the Archangel Michael doesn't exist? I've seen enough stuff in my life to believe anything exists. Okay? On the other hand, um, I have heard people who supposedly channel these kind of entities speak in, other, speak in utter gobbledygook and nonsense. Well, that's got nothing to do with the Archangel Michael. And this is now the age of Neptune. So um, is it the Archangel Michael you're talking to, or is it the Archangel Michael you'd like to be talking to? Well, that, that also brings up another point is, uh, you know, entities. And I'm going to use an example of a film I saw once called The Fourth Kind. Okay. It's a sci-fi horror-style film. I think I've seen that. You might so have seen it. Describe it more. I might have seen it. All right. That. It has that, that actress in it whose name I can't remember. I think she's Russian. She's a very attractive lady. She's in those um, Resident Evil films too. Uh, it has to do with like a, a town that's up in some remote part of Alaska where people in, are claiming to have seen what they're, they're calling owls. Okay. Giant owls looking in their windows. And there's, a, there's an interesting thing they do where they have like they're, I've seen this. Yeah, they're, they're purporting that this film is like a combination of documentary footage and then dramatizations. I've so, seen this. Yeah. I'm not remembering. You're, you're, I'm, it's coming back to me. I've seen this. The owl thing. Yeah. I've seen this. So there's a, they're hypnotizing these people, and then they, there's a moment when one guy realizes that it's not an owl that he's actually seeing. Yes. That it's some other type of, I'm going to call it an alien, okay? Mm -hmm. And he freaks out. And it's this huge traumatic experience for him because he, his brain can only describe it in a certain way. Okay. Now, in my limited occult studies that I've done, you know, there's a, there's many different names. There's all these different incarnations of of things, of beings, and whatnot. And then there's also another arm to my interest, which has to do with, you know, aliens and interstellar beings and things like that. And I think in reality, and then also I read, you know, Chariot of the Gods, you know, where, you know, paintings on cave walls and there's like uh, stories of, of you know, ancient astronauts coming and imparting wisdom, you know, the Vamanas and all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. Three, I think that they're all kind of the same thing, really, you know, just my own hypothesis about these well things. you know the Taoists would agree with you consciousness is consciousness yeah it's different expressions are not the one yeah and you know there's the one and the many and the many and the one 
So if you believe in a unified reality, there is only one consciousness. There's just many facets of it. Like your brain can have a lot of ideas, but it's yeah. still your brain. Absolutely. I mean, we can, in a mundane way, you can explain it like that. Yeah. Um, in terms of the whole alien phenomenon, I have worked with alien abductees, yeah. not for a long time though, um, and I have a, uh, resisted an abduction myself. Okay. Um, abductions are not necessarily what people think they are. Okay. On one level, well, we've been talking for the last little while, mm -hmm. and one of the points I made was, you know, the difference between actual astral travel and or astral travel and actual out of body experience. Right. And they both go to a reality. Okay. Let's let's be clear about that. Yeah. They're different sorts of realities, but they're both realities. And, and I, I think if you if you follow a spiritual path, or you follow a theoretical scientific path, you're going to come to the same conclusion. Reality is a multifaceted affair. It is not a two-dimensional or even limited three-dimensional affair. It's layered. It's subtle. It's everywhere. It's everything. So the abduction that I resisted, um, I was asleep in my apartment. Right. Um, at the time, my dog was alive. She's laying in the bed with me. I'm sleeping. And I thought I was dreaming. Very lucid dream, very uh, tactile dream, but yet I knew I wasn't awake. And my apartment filled with this orange glow. And I sat up in bed, but when I looked back, my body was still lying down, but I was sitting up. Okay. And this orange glow got more intense, and within it, I could see three black silhouettes of figures. And they were speaking telepathically. I could hear them telepathically, but there was no noise in the apartment. And they were speaking about me. And I didn't know exactly what they were saying, but I knew they were speaking about me. And I knew they were speaking about me in a very objective sense, like you would speak about a nice piece of chicken on the grill. And all of a sudden, I got this inkling like these things were going to do something to me that I didn't want done. Right. And I said to them, get out of my apartment. And they just acted like I didn't say or do anything oh, like wow. I was just this objective thing that they were looking at and they were just deciding what they were going to do with it next. And then I got really angry and I opened my mouth and these flames came out of my mouth, like, like a flamethrower. And if you've ever seen a flamethrower, it's really intense and it singed the entire bubble around them. And that got their attention. All of a sudden they all like, pricked up a little bit and they started looking at each other and now I knew they were talking to each other like this was not planned what <laughs> is going on here yeah. and I just kept yelling and shooting the flames at them and then eventually they just withdrew and the orange glow started to go away and then they just disappeared through the ceiling of the room now I turn around I'm still laying I'm sitting up and still looking at myself laying down on the bed and I look at my dog, and my dog is sound asleep. Right. So then I lay back down into my body, and I woke up the next morning completely exhausted and thinking to myself, what happened? 
at the time I had a spiritual mentor and I went to the school and I'm telling him about this. So he says to me, you came this close to being abducted. He goes, something in you, which could be the reason why you're here and why your studies are going well here. There's something in you that is very familiar. And in this lifetime, you can draw on things from other times. And you were able to resist that. And then is when I started to hear stories where people were claiming they would get abducted and that they lived in New York. There are alien abductees who live in New York. Yeah, yeah. And I'm New York City. Exactly, yeah. And then I would hear ignorant people say, well, how could they get abducted and nobody see the flying saucer? Yeah, Abduction is sometimes a three-dimensional tactile reality experience and sometimes it is an dream time astral time experience and as i drew the comparison between the two levels of reality out of body or astral it's all reality and if you are abducted on the astral plane or you're abducted on the physical plane you are still going to suffer an experience of degradation domination and I don't think I'm the only person that's ever resisted an abduction. I can't believe it. I mean, what would make me so special? Yeah. And the abductees that I have worked with have, a lot of them have a very common factor within them. In, if you press them, they ultimately feel helpless. In other words, I can't do anything about this. You know, it's like, it's like on a more mundane level, it, could be like a woman who's being abused by her spouse. Okay. I, I can't leave him. Wherever I go, he'll find me. I can't get away from him. He's all-powerful. And really severe abuse victims have that kind of mentality. And it's not true necessarily, but it's what's true for them. Exactly, yeah. So the whole notion of what we are is completely up for grabs, and we're no closer to knowing that than we were when they had the first factory or they invented the first wheel. We're no closer. Because the spiritual technologies in ancient times are what the spiritual technologies of modern times draw upon. And there's not been a lot added to it on the spiritual technology level. There, what's been added to it is in the mundane public perception. Yeah, of it. exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you know, before the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in the late 1800s, the only people that knew t about tarot cards were people that were involved. They belonged to a secret society, or they knew a gypsy, or but it was not for mass consumption. There were people who didn't even know what tarot cards were. Fifty years ago, there were people who didn't know. Yeah, what tarot I, cards I would say are. even more recent than that. There was. I, mean, I, there was I would say now you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who didn't know what yeah. they were. They're all over the place. Well, I mean, it's you know, there, there's like artwork, like popular art, artwork, and t people wearing T-shirts with like. But the irony here is that we, as a group, have evolved an inch. Yeah. It's only through immersion in the spiritual technologies, which are ancient that we will grow significantly. You know, and the simple, I mean, there's the Paul Thoreau comment, an unexamined life is not worth living. 
And that's really what spirituality is. It's, it's examining. It's examining who I am. And you'll never fully figure that out, but you will full, figure a lot out on the way there. Real quick about the flying saucers is that I don't believe that if there's an alien race out there that is, in, is, is capable of doing these technological feats, that they're going to come here in a flying saucer. They'll come here in what they come here in. I think that the, it's going to be through like some at, like an astral projection to, to go intergalactic distances with their consciousness. I think the body is not going to come. It's going to be the consciousness that gets projected. Um, yes. Okay. Um, are you familiar at all with uh, the Montauk books, the Montauk Project books? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, way back when, I knew Preston Nichols and Peter Moon. Mm-hmm. Um Peter Moon's the journalist. Preston Nichols was the guy who had the experiences. Right. And I remember going to visit him at his house in Cairo, New York with a friend, which was a whole trip in and of itself. Um, He's quite an eccentric character. Uh, But there were two things that I remember from the visit. The first was him claiming to have seen uh, the Roswell vehicle in a hangar somewhere underground and somewhere in the southern United States. And he was brought there and they wanted him to look at it because he had the expertise. And he said that, you know, when he went in the cockpit, he was an electrical engineer. Mm -hmm. There were no controls. There were seats and there were contact pads where obviously whatever being sat in there would put their hand on it. Right. And there were contact pads for the fingers and that was it. There was no discernible engine. There was no discernible electronic machinery nothing huh okay now there's also i forget the name of the book i mean there's so much you know i've been doing this for 22 years so there's stuff that i went through and it's like really cool and immersed in at the time but i just i don't remember it that well now there was a guy who wrote a book about the energy grid phenomenon and according to him uh there's an energy grid that envelopes the earth like a big piece of graph paper and on these grids on the cross points of the grids is where the energy is strongest so initially when they detonated atomic bombs they did it on grid points okay because atomic bombs don't have traditional detonators so what sets them off they're not like regular bombs so in this book the guy i think he was australian or new or from new zealand he wrote an article and predicted where the French were going to do their next nuclear test. Oh, based on this grid. On this grid. And he was right. He picked the spot exactly. Huh. And he was visited by the Americans. Yeah. You yeah. know, the, the Americans shadow, with the little, shadowy, yeah, yeah. With the little <laughs> microphones in their ears. They kind of visited him and they're like, all questions. right, who are you and how do you yeah, know this? That's a questions for him. <laughs> all right. So, um... In terms of how energy works, he also explained that most of UFO sightings are on grid points because when those craft come into our atmosphere, they tap into the energy grid of our planet and that's how they fly. That's their fuel. And they are, I have, for a long time, I felt that ETs 
our projections of ourselves into the future. Yeah, that, that's something I've, I've... They're I've, just a much more advanced version of ourselves. They have, if, you know, in modern physiology, they'll say you use about 10% of your brain. Well, maybe the ETs that visit us are an advanced form that use 50% of their brain. But can you imagine what that entails? Yeah, well, also just the way that you can see it these days currently in our society, how the physical body, you know, with, with just CRISPR technology and like stem cells, how our bodies in, in a thousand years, the human form is going to be completely different. Let me go back to a second. One more thing about Preston Nichols. When we visited him, he built this thing. Um, and it was a very comfy, lazy boy chair. Mm -hmm. And it was, in, uh, uh, be, it was in the center of four speakers, like with the four cardinal points. All right, so you're either sitting in a diamond or a square, depending on how you twist the yeah. chair. And these are fairly decent-sized speakers, like, you know, two, three feet high. And he said uh, the design for them, the ETs gave him. So he says, you sit in this chair, you choose a piece of music, and you will have an experience like you've never had before. And I'm not talking about listening to good, clear music. Mm -hmm. So he said, pick a piece of music. So I said, Kyrie Eleison by the Electric Prunes. And he was a recording engineer for much of his life. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he knew exactly who they were because I don't have that. I said, all right, the Symphony Fantastique by Hector Berlioz. He goes, that I have. So we sit there, he puts on the Symphony Fantastique and he plays me the whole first movement of it. And it was, I had never listened to music before as a bodily experience. Oh, okay. All right, it, it, yeah, I didn't know how to describe it, but it was more than just listening to it. It really affected my entire body. So we finished our time with him. My friend and I drive back to Manhattan. And at the time I was working at the, the ARE of New York Holistic Center. And uh, I get a call from them. And they said, this woman called, um, and she's a, a, a classical musician, and she's doing a celebration for the 100th anniversary of Hector Berlioz's birthday. And she's looking to, to connect with a psychic. Would you be interested? So I'm like, well, what are the chances of that? After just having that experience in that chair, listening to the Symphony Fantastique. So now I meet with this woman. And I proceeded to work with her for a couple of weeks. And, and I did techniques that I do using, you know, gematria, Hebrew numerology, and the, and the pendulum and stuff like that. And so I really try to immerse myself into, you know, Hector Berlioz, not just from what you can read on Wikipedia, but what I can experience by trying to tap into any residuals of his energy. So, you know, I found out through, well, I did do basic research as well. I found out that he had two sisters. Mm -hmm. And using this woman's birthday, his birthday, the sister's birthday, I did all these calculations. And it came up with the fact that's like, I said to her, why is Berlioz your favorite composer? And she gave me this long, involved response, and all I really, really needed to hear was, I'm emotionally connected to this. Yeah. So then I determined that she was a reincarnation of one of his sisters. Except I thought she was one sister, and she thought she was the other sister. So I had to convince her. I didn't try to convince her. I just said, you know, this is my opinion. But I ended up convincing her. And so she was so enamored of this whole process that she's like i want you to speak at the memorial concert we're going to have at joe's pub wow 
So at the time, all of these famous people in the classical music world show up at Joe's Pub, and they did selections of Berlioz. And of course, everyone was there to see the music. And originally, I was going to speak for 15 minutes in the intermission, but then they were waiting for this really big star to came. Then it went down to seven minutes, then eight minutes. Then, when I, then at one point, somebody says to me, you got three minutes. <laughs> go up there and say something while we're changing the set. And of course, I go up there. Now everybody's going to the bathroom, and they all yeah, want drinks. Exactly. So um, I just went, I just yelled. I was like, hey. And all of a sudden, everybody looked at me, and I said, if you could just give me three minutes, I promise I won't go over that, but you may want to hear this. So I gave them the abbreviated version of everything that I did and whatever. And this one guy started laughing at me. This one guy started laughing. I forget what I said to him, but everybody started laughing at him. And then when I was done, that was it. I walk off the stage and the next thing I know, there's this line of people that want consultations with me. So it ends up in a mundane way. But what was really striking to me was that I would sit in this electrical construct made by this guy, Preston Nichols, choose a piece of music and have that radiate out into an outer reality and draw to me the basic essence of what originally created that music. I've never seen the woman again, never been to Joe's pub again, but it was, it's been experiences like that all through my life. And hopefully as I'm getting older, I'm a little more eloquent and a little more clear about explaining them. But what I have ultimately learned is anybody who claims to be able to explain a reality to you is a fool that that's how i feel these days they are they don't, i don't care where they have their phd from yeah. or what they think they know they may be the ace of base for making a nuclear warhead yeah. they may be silicon's valley infantarably to make a great computer but they can't tell you what they are what their consciousness is or how any of this relates in a grander way than what their limitations are. Yeah, I mean, that, that's essentially what I've come to, you know, is that, you know, there's like this hubris that man has about being able to explain things. And I think that... It's how we feel comfortable. Yeah, it's... it's, a, it's <laughs> it for, keeps the darkness away. Exactly, it keeps the darkness away because when you start thinking about these some of these concepts that you can't describe you can't explain them you don't have a a concept that you can pull out of a book so, oh yeah this is like theorem number whatever to explain this phenomenon you become uncomfortable well you know when the 20th century mystic Gurdjieff wrote his masterpiece Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson he created all these extremely long phonetic names for things that are very hard to pronounce and it takes a lot of work to be able to figure out what is actually relating, what's the concept that's associated mm -hmm. with this name. And the reason he did that is because he wanted to intentionally, you know, mix your consciousness up. 
like breaking pools, like breaking pool balls at the beginning of a game yeah. to create more shots. Because as you're configured by your traditional education, there's only so many shots that are available to you. And based on that, you only see, you hit this ball, it goes directly into that hole. When you break a different way, maybe all of a sudden you see a shot that's a deflect here, a nudge there, and now you can get that ball in when you never thought it was possible to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and even using the analogy, the analogy of pool, it's like you've seen, you know, everyone's seen these amazing shots that people do that look impossible. Mm -hmm. And it's just because they, they have this penchant because they've allowed themselves to see the different angles that are existing out there you know, or through practice or some form of meditation or, you know, like I said, practice is a form of meditation, doing, training yourself to do certain things. They can connect these different angles to achieve these goals. Did you ever see the movie Field of Dreams? Yes, I did. A long One of my ago. favorite movies because I think it has considerably more metaphysical depth than a lot of people give it, give it credit for. Mm -hmm. And at the end, when Kevin Costner gets to meet the younger version of his father, yeah, and he realizes it is his father, and Shoeless Joe is about to walk into the cornfield and disappear, Costner looks at him and telepathically his voice says, it was you, like you brought my father. And Joe just stops, played by Ray Liotta, before he walks into the corn, and he just thinks back, no, it was you. That's the moment. I think that's one of the great moments in cinematic history, because it speaks to more truly to what the nature of consciousness is. You know, when people, when I first started studying on this path, people would have synchronicities in their lives, you know, meaningful coincidences yeah. that seemed like, wow, what are the chances of that happening? And they would say, you know, this is the universe speaking to me. This is God, quote unquote, speaking to me. It's like, no, this is you showing yourself what you're capable of. And until you understand that, synchronicities are going to freak you out. But once you understand it's you, then you realize, oh, my God, if I can do that, what can't I do? Because I would have synchronicities. Like, I remember one day when I lived in Upper Manhattan, I went out and walked my dog at like 8 in the morning. And when I got to the corner, this guy was walking by a mailbox. I looked at him. I noticed him. I went out at about... Five o'clock, walk my dog again. The same guy's walking in the same direction by the mailbox. I went out that evening before bed. The same guy was walking in the same direction <laughs> past the mailbox. How do you explain that? <laughs> and you know what the trick is? Don't try to explain it. Just sit with it. Let it soak in your brain. Let it pickle in your brain a little bit. And you'll realize over, just accept it. I saw it, so it's real. Over the coming weeks and months, you'll start to notice you're capable of a lot more adeptness than you ever thought before. And, and actually, that's how I end the, the play Psychic Reading, where um, the reader explains something that happened to him to try to help this guy digest concepts that he feels he's not ready for yet. Right. And literally what happened to me in the path station is I, I got on the train at General Square and the, the car was empty. And I'm sitting there waiting for it to, to take off. And I look to my right and a young black woman and a young white man come walking in. They're obviously together and they sit down together. 
So I look back again. A minute or two later, I look back, and the same couple walked in again and sat in the same empty seat. <laughs> so we sat there for a few more minutes. Some more people came in. I rode into the city, and I just started to notice. I just said, I accept this. I, I'm trying to explain it was too daunting. It was either going to give me a headache or frighten me. So I just said, this happened. I saw it. I'm, I'm, I'm aware enough of myself now to realize I'm not crazy. You know, that happened. And over time, I started to notice increases in my abilities. My readings became deeper, truer. It was easier for me. I had to go through less of a rigmarole to be able to tap into somebody. So synchronicities are like like automatic upgrades on your phone mm -hmm. where all of a sudden you get this like little beep on your phone and it says, okay, you know, Apple wants to update this and this for you. And all you have to do to agree is agree to it. And two minutes later you have the new app. Yeah. Well, the universe does that with us or we do that for ourselves. Our higher self does that with our more mundane, consciously aware self all the time. We're getting updates and synchronicities are those updates. And if you let those updates get traction, you'll notice that your operating system is a lot better. So, you know, it's no accident that ETs have technology, according to Preston Nichols, that doesn't need mechanics. It just needs a mind. It just needs a mind and the ability to use that mind over matter, literally. You, you uh, mentioned the term higher self, which comes up a lot in, um, you know, in, in ceremonial magic. You know, it's a, you know, I, who's to say what that is? It's a, yeah. you, we got to name it something. Yeah. It's a convenience. But what would you say the connection is between like, you know, let's, well, use the term higher self and the more material aspect of who we are. Okay. When people, when I first started doing readings, mm -hmm. I was more out there in the marketplace than I am now. I'm right. like a lot more hidden now and people know, people that want to find me know where to find me. Sure. Um, but when I was a lot more out in the marketplace, um, I would have other readers, you know, there are readers and then there are networkers. So the networkers would be like, you know, um, so how do, how do you do your readings? Do you channel the Archangel Michael? Do you <laughs> there we go. channel the Virgin Mary? It's like, yeah. who, 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 who do you communicate to? So I would say my higher self. And then, you know, the people that knew the lingo would accept that and walk away, but mm -hmm. maybe someone in a class would say, well, what do you mean by your higher self? So the, the simplest way I would explain it is that at this point in time, here I am. Sometime further on my personal timeline is a version of me that knows a lot more than I do. Right. I don't know how it got to know that, but in the space between where I am now and that place, mm -hmm. which is really all the same place, there's more knowledge. So I'm asking that future aspect of myself, give me, a, give me a hand here. If this person's telling me they're not getting along with their mother or their father, I need to tap into that person's energy. So give me a little of your mojo so I can use it now because I don't know that I have it yet. But I do have it yet because that future version of me is me. And if, you, if all time is eternally present, as T.S. Eliot said, then my future self and me are the same thing. It's all in like this hyperspace where it all exists simultaneously. So 
That's what a wormhole is. You bend time yeah. and space. You take two remote. Like, the, the easiest way to explain a wormhole is take a sheet of paper and fold it in half so that two points, two of the corners touch. Mm -hmm. That's what a wormhole does in time and space. It just bends it so the journey is not a journey. It's still a present place. It's just a different present place. Yeah, that's a concept a lot of people have trouble with is that concept of time is not necessarily being linear but existing concurrently mm -hmm. into some some version because of they're taught to think of it linearly yeah because you know you look at a clock and the seconds tick away and you know well i used to like to i remember being on a panel once at a new life expo with this really big time charlatan and he was saying that he routinely communicated to beings where time doesn't exist And I thought to myself, well, if time doesn't exist, that means duration doesn't exist. And if duration doesn't exist, then you don't change. So if you're telling me they're from a place where change doesn't exist, time is just something, it's like a barnacle on the back of change. Mm -hmm. Change is like this big whale and this time is this barnacle on it. And change is happening. You go out into infinite space where it seems like nothing is changing. Something is changing because the universe is constantly expanding. The universe does not stand still. It's always movement. It's infinite movement into infinite space. So you can't say time doesn't exist. You could say clocks don't exist. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I was getting but at. But duration yeah. exists. You know, is that the way that we, we measure time is... It's almost the same way that we would measure the length of this table. You know what I mean? It's like we need inches and, you know, feet. But there are abstractions. Like a second is like a, our idea of a sort of abstract delineation of time that has no meaning outside of what we actually are, are defining it as. I believe that logic is a police force with a very, very small jurisdiction. <laughs> Now, you're sitting here in my apartment with me. Obviously, when my wife and I moved here from our house, we had furniture. We yes. had to find a place where our furniture would fit. Yeah. Because in New York apartments, we saw several apartments where we couldn't get our bed in the bedroom. Yeah, exactly. The bedroom was not big enough. Yeah. So after we saw about two or three apartments, I realized I need to have a tape measure. So you're sitting now, and, and you can see how tightly fitted everything mm -hmm. is here. I measured this to the yeah, exact. Yeah, it's laid out really, really nicely, I by measured the way. it exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the last thing we put in was the couch, and I knew exactly how wide the couch had to be, and we had to go to three or four stores before we could find a couch that size. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we found it, and it fits. So logic has its use, but like I said, it's a police force and a that has a very small jurisdiction because the universe is not limited by logic. Logic is something we apply to the universe so we can make sense of the unfathomable. Yeah, exactly. That's like essentially what science and math is too. You know I mean? Like I'm a big fan of science and math. You know I mean? My whole background is in engineering and, you know, and I, and if you want to build a bridge, you know, or you want to like heat your home or condition, make the air cooler, absolutely that's the way to go mm -hmm. but if you want to answer like real questions that have to do with consciousness i don't think 
the answers are going to wholly lie within that discipline. Well, you know, the Kabbalah is based on mathematics. Yeah, exactly. Hebrew numerology is the use of, or gematria, is the use of mathematics to try to draw links between correspondences. And since we live in a relative universe, we can only explain an unfathomable spiritual concept in relativity, in relativity to a fathomable spiritual concept. Yeah. So if you have a dream, a lot of times the imagery in a dream is extremely abstract mm-hmm. and befuddling to the dreamer. So te- a technique I used to teach people is write your dream down, but put it in sections. Like, for instance, a train is driving along the tracks. Then it goes into a tunnel. Then an owl comes out the other side. So your dream has three parts. The train on the track, the train in the tunnel, the tunnel, and the owl. So it's four parts. Mm -hmm. Shuffle the tarot cards and pull a card for each part. You'd be surprised that the, the, the new context creates new perspective and often brings that very abstract dream into a much more understandable framework where now you at least have a foothold to realize what you're trying to tell yourself. And there were many people that would come back and be like, wow, that really helped a lot. Yeah. You know, the only thing that's necessary is make yourself familiar with what the symbolism of the cards represents or even just what the images suggest to you. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm not fully, I have a lot to learn about the tarot deck, but I, so I, look, at the, I look at the imagery on the cards quite a bit for, other, for a ver- variety of different reasons. Um, it's a remarkable, it, it's a remarkable construct. Yeah, like I, I couldn't really tell you much about the different arcana in the deck or anything. I'm still learning all that sort of stuff. Well, you know, it's Jung's whole concept of human archetypes. He got from the tarot. Mm-hmm. He didn't apply it to the tarot. He didn't right. give it to the tarot. It existed and he, in a way, filched it to explain his understandings better well that's kind of how i look at the deck is like this sort of archetype like we were talking about abstractions and how different you know i mean it's not the same sort of idea but it's a similar concept of how we assign certain imagery to these different versions of entities that we might see or whatever and i feel like the tarot is you know just kind of like abstractions of certain common archetypes that we have in our experience as, as humans. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the tarot is such a unique construction. It has no verifiable history. Well, I was going to ask you, because that's my understanding, too, is that it just showed up in Europe the first, somewhere. Yeah, the first recorded tarot deck, I believe, is the Visconti Savorsa deck, which was like in 1610 or something like that. All right, well, you can use it to play a game called taroki, mm-hmm. but you can also use it to think of a question, shuffle the cards, lay them out in a prescribed form, and get insight into your question. How the hell is that possible? Where does that come from? Who made that deck? Did a guy make the deck or a woman make the deck? 
Where did it come from? It just it just was born whole out of some wormhole somewhere. Well, that, that's the thing that's really puzzling. You know what I mean? And it manages to fit into another medieval Renaissance construct known as the Tree of Life. Yes. Now, how's that possible? Because the tarot is not Hebraic. And a lot of really classical, hardcore Kabbalists will not acknowledge the tarot. Oh, that's, that's something tacked on later by Christianity. But isn't it intriguing that it fits so perfectly into the Tree of Life along with the 12 basic astrology archetypes and the 10 planets? They all fit in the Tree of Life like a hand in a glove. Yeah, yeah. Who invented that? <laughs> Who figured that out? You know, and, and there's a really interesting book called The Law of One series. Mm -hmm. I think it consists of four books. I think book three or book two, um, it would be easy enough to find out on the Internet. One of the books is about the tarot archetypes and how they originated in ancient Egypt and they were given to the ancient Egyptians by off-planet entities. That, saying, listen, okay. you're, you're, a, you're a, a fifth dimension, and you're a third dimension entity. We're fifth dimension entities. We understand more about the nature of universal reality than you do, and we've learned universal compassion. So we're gonna give you something to help for your evolution so that you'll eventually get to where we are because we won't be there anymore. We'll be somewhere else. Yeah, it'll be on some other level beyond okay? that. And yeah. then when you get there, you can give it to who's ever behind you so we can keep this whole thing moving and keep evolution happening in, in a most advantageous way. And it's written from the point of view. Uh, well, the people who wrote the Law of One books were a team of three. There was a psychic who went into a trance, much like the late Edgar Cayce did and a scribe who wrote down everything they said, mm -hmm. and then a magician who created the environment and monitored it to make sure that no other intelligences besides what they wanted to communicate to would come in. So the intelligence that came in was called, referred to itself as Ra, the law of one. So if the magician sensed there was anything else there other than Ra, or Ra would say, you know, somebody else is kind of horning in on this now. Ra, Ra was the uh, sun, the Egyptian god of the solar god, right? In Egypt. Yes, but I don't yeah. think this is relative it wasn't to, relevant that. to that. Okay. I don't think it's relative to that. I just think, um, well, the next point I was going to make is when you read this book, it's in English, but it's not written by somebody who speaks English. But it's not like it's written by somebody who's French, who's writing a second language. It's attempting to record the communication from a being who's trying to explain concepts that are so beyond our language that it's kind of really creating almost new syntax hmm. okay. to be able to communicate what it needs to communicate. It reads awkwardly, but if you like slow yourself down to that rhythm mm -hmm. it's extremely insightful like in a way that normal english would not be insightful and you really kind of get this whole layer now the three people that composed those books are all dead at this point i believe okay um the books are available on the internet but the one on the tarot i used to own it um i like hardcover books i've never seen it in hardcover um i had a falling apart paperback version that i eventually just departed at one point um 
It's a fascinating book to read if you're interested in yeah, the tarot. Yeah, sounds, sounds interesting. Um, I read it when I already knew a fair amount about the tarot, and, and that perspective made me look at the tarot because the danger with a lot of occultism is that you will look at it solely through the lens of its own imagery. You know, like, for instance, when you watch TV shows about witches, they yeah. all look gothy. Yeah, exactly. These chicks they're, they're with black all, hair. Yeah, and, I mean, they're all, they you know. all follow this, this stereotype. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, like everybody that has that knowledge has to look like that. Yeah, exactly. So this kind of took tarot out of its, you know, occulty uh, setting and put it in a more universal environment that allowed you to realize it was more about consciousness than about artifice. And that's what the point that you brought up about, you know, the, the lens is like the reason, because, you know, I'm surrounded by people in my life who are, you know, very much into the occult and tarot. And I, I want to make sure that I'm not influenced by their sort of things. You know, there's I mean? a lot of dogma. Yeah. So I, I, that's why I'm, I'm taking this other sort of alternative approach to understanding it. And, uh, so yeah, but I think I think that that sounds like a, an interesting series of well, books to read, though. I I've taught the tarot for years. I haven't taught in a while, but I could teach it tomorrow. It's like second nature to me. I I've taught the tarot for years, and at the beginning, for a good five to ten years, I would just get up there and and spew knowledge at people. I was like a talking head, mm -hmm. you know, like a conventional instructor. I would just tell you everything you wanted to know about the tarot in two hours and then come back next week and we'll do it again and the last class i would let people try to read and it took me about a decade to realize what a freaking mistake that is when i teach now i do a one hour introduction to the tarot mm -hmm. and it's mostly about the tarot as a tool for consciousness and how it relates generally to kabbalah and generally to spirituality and what you're looking to do or what you should be looking to do when you work with it. At that point, I say to everyone, take out your decks, you're going to do a reading. So an hour into the first class, I pair people up. I say, I don't care if you know about the tarot, you don't know about the tarot. You ask the other person to think of a question. Okay? They ask you the question. You meditate with the cards. You shuffle them up. You lay out three cards. Or actually, I design one spread that I use for everything. I call it the H spread. It's okay. three cards on the left, three cards yeah. on the right, and one card yep. in the middle. So it looks that. like a big H. Mm -hmm. You either use that or three card spread. Yeah, the three card spread is common for Just like, lay it out. Yeah, I've done that a bunch Just of lay times. it out, look at the cards, and start saying what your impressions are. Don't worry about being wrong. Don't worry about saying something stupid. We're all forgiving here. Don't say something tasteless. Don't make shit up. Just say what comes into your mind. You would be shocked how many people are like, you know, and, 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 and I would have them on a timer. Okay, so 10 minutes you read for that person, 10 minutes the other person reads for you. Okay, then we talk about the readings for the last hour, half hour of the class. Almost everybody is like, okay, what was significant about your reading that i could do it that i actually said something that resonated with the other person hmm. yeah it was amazing i can't believe they said that i said okay now you have an inkling this is not about 
traditional academia. Yeah, it's not as technical, I think, as some people try to make this it out to This is be. about yeah. opening yourself to a tool that is alive. It's not alive like you are and I am. Mm -hmm. It doesn't eat and crap and go to sleep and then get up again. It's alive in the sense that consciousness is alive. So once you connect with that sense of life, it's yours. Keep working with the cards. If cards come up that you don't understand, if your impressions fail you at some point, then have a reference book. Look up what the card means. Meditate on that. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't apply, what other relevant thing to that meaning does apply? Right. Learn one card a day. 78 days later, if you follow this program, you'll be adept enough at tarot cards to be able to use them for the rest of your life and get decent at it for your own needs. That sounds like a good approach, definitely. For about the last three or four years I've taught like that, the success rate in the class has, and by success rate, I mean when it's over, I just say to people, are you comfortable working with the tarot now? They say yes. Are you getting useful answers for yourself and whoever you read for? Yes. I would say the success rate now is probably about 85%, where when I started, if I got a success rate of 15% or 10%, I just attributed to the fact of, well, some people are wired to do this and some people are just clueless, but it's not that. It's not that. In other words, my teaching method had to evolve because I had to learn to look at the tarot from the outside in instead of just staying inside. Right, right. Like, you know, I live here. If I want to know the neighborhood, I got to walk out of my apartment. Yeah. If I just stay in my apartment, I could live here for 20 years and not know anything about this neighborhood. That's a great analogy, actually, to apply to a lot of different things. <laughs> so, sure. you know, in other words, you learn it and then you go through a process perhaps of unlearning it so you can relearn it. And the wonderful thing about a system like the tarot or astrology is that you can learn it and unlearn it on and on for the rest of your life. And there will be no, le there will be no, no shortage of insights. And you will feel your consciousness evolve. Now, you were saying that you're not so, like, for, like forward with... You know, you're more in the, in the sort of receded as far as your uh, your profile mm -hmm. for being available for readings and stuff like that. There could be a lot of reasons for yeah. that. Um, you know, I've had disagreements with this on with on this subject with people close to me. Um, I have never felt that advertising works for the spiritual occult professions because there are a lot of people out there who advertise who maybe get paid big bucks for readings. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe they have successful websites. And when they appear or when they're on TV or when they're out there doing their shtick, if you listen to what they're saying, much of it is very canned, a lot of parody, a lot of vague, generalized concepts. You know, um, on the other hand, I felt if you're really doing the work and you really have something to offer, then there's an X factor that will make people seek you. Now, for a long time in my career, I worked out of brick and mortar venues. Right. 
And yeah, they brought me a lot of readings, you know, people walking in and off the street. Um, I did more business, but a lot of those readings were really hit and miss because a lot of people think they're ready for something or have expectations. And I had some, a client the other day tell me, you know, your readings are so much different because when you explain it, there's kind of a continuity between what I don't, what they don't know yet that allows them to discover what they need to know. Mm, so okay. it kind of like comes as more a flower of wisdom growing within them rather than me pulling stuff out of my ass and saying things to them where they're like, what does that mean? And what I learned is that people that come in with high new agey expectations find the kind of nuts and bolts readings I give as, well, what I will get from people like that is they'll say, I knew that already. And I'll say to them, but I didn't. Or how should I? Yeah. Or how could I? All right, now I've set you up, so now I'm going to tell you something you don't know, mm -hmm. but it's not going to make any sense to you. But it will make sense shortly. Now, I wouldn't say that to them, but I would have people come back to me and say, man, you know, some of the stuff you said to me, I, w I walked out going, what is he talking about? And then like a couple of days later or a week later, it was like all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, that's exactly what yeah, he was talking about. People have to have patience, you know, which is something that most people seem to lack. Well, it's a process, yeah. you know, and it's not about, it's not show business. Mm -hmm. And ironically, when I first wrote Psychic Reading, um, somebody who read it said to me, how does it end? There's not an ending. And I'm like, well, I wrote them originally as documentaries of what readings are really like. And readings right. don't end. Yeah. The time just runs out. So in both of the readings and psychic reading that I've documented, and, and they're made up, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put people's private yeah, business definitely. And, I didn't and think publish so, yeah. people's private business, but you know, they're made up based on twenty years of reading and doing, you know, 8,000, 10,000 readings. Sure. So I, I could identify common themes and improvise. But in both readings, the reader tells them everything they need to know appropriate to their evolution at that time. Some of it they can digest and some of it they can't. The lack of feeling there's an ending is that they walk out of there with some undigested stuff. That's what a reading really is. And if you think about it, that's what life really is. Yeah. Only art has artificial endings. That's true, yeah, I mean, that's... And one thing I've noticed in terms of the modernists, whether it's art or drama or literature, the modernists brought us stories without endings, stories with um, poignancy, intelligence, insight, depth, inspiration, teaching, evolutionary information, but they don't end or they end off key, mm -hmm. or they end, like Eliot says in The Hollow Men, the world ends with a bang, not a, with a whimper, not a bang. <laughs> or he says it the opposite way, the world doesn't end with a bang, it ends with a whimper. 
I think what didn't they use that in Apocalypse Now? Oh yeah, well yeah, that was. I'm Apocalypse just saying that, now rips yeah. off a lot of it, yeah. Some, that, no, yes. For some reason, that 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 Elliot, that little vignette there. Resonated. Yeah, I think, I think in Mr. I think Saturn, Saturn I use the Elliot. So, yeah. Mr. Saturn, I use the Elliot line. I quote uh, Elliot, where uh, you know, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Yeah. So can people find you online if they you know? Oh, absolutely. My website is the thirteenthpath.com. Okay. I'll spell it out for you because maybe you don't. It's all lowercase, T-H-E-1-3-T-H-P-A-T-H dot com. Great. You can get in touch with me there. You can request a reading there. You can read what I'm about there. You can buy one of my books there. It links to my publisher. Oh, yeah, that was, that was the other question I had is like yeah. getting, it's all, that's a portal to every, all yes, the other things. absolutely. It'll link you right to my publisher or you can buy it on Amazon. Great. I have an Amazon author's page under uh, my name, my pen name, my public name, T period C period Isley, E-I-S-E-L-E. Great. So when's, uh, when are you going to complete this, uh, this, this play that you're working on? The one I'm on working on now, I don't know when I'll complete it in the near future sometimes. You know, I'm, uh, I've entered into the world of drama at this point. Uh-huh. So what happens is that you write a play, you know, I go over it, try to make it as polished as I can, and then I send it out to theater companies all over the country, and maybe they get back to me in six months, maybe they get back to me in nine months, who knows. Um, I've entered a bunch of contests. Mr. Saturn's been a semifinalist in three contests, but then it got eliminated, so really I'm still at square one. <laughs> you know what I mean? In other words, um, it's still not produced. Yeah. Um, also, I find in the drama business, the way it usually works is a play gets produced and then it gets published. Right. Because then anytime anybody wants to produce it after that, they have to purchase the rights. Exactly. I was just going to, that if sounds you a have lot to, like music. If, yep. you have, if you have the pul- play, uh, play published beforehand, then somebody, who do they pay for the rights? Exactly, yeah. You know, there are, there are a limited amount of drama publishing companies and they're all linked. Mm-hmm. So my first play, Psychic Reading, was published as a book. I never tried to get it produced as a play. Um, eventually, I would like all my plays to be published because I'm, I'm old school that way. I want to see my writing in a, in a hardcover book or a book that's sold in a, either through Amazon or in a brick-and-mortar store. I want my book, want my writing to be a physical object, not a digital yeah. phenomenon. So um, right now, I got... Three plays winging around out there. You know, eventually I'll send out a fourth. And, you know, I'm an occultist. I've done divinations on it. You know, all the divinations come out with a good ending, but that could be a month from now, a day from now, a year from now. Who knows? Well, thanks for your time, Tom. I appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for giving me the, the, time, in, uh, the time and space.